Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Commitment Matters. What a great episode we have for you today. We have a fantastic guest, and boy, do we cover a lot of ground. You'll be hearing my conversation with Elizabeth Blosser, who's the Vice President of Government Affairs for the American Land Title Association. She oversees the association's state legislative efforts, and she coordinates ALTSA's commercial network. She's engaged in a variety of industry initiatives, including digital closings and e-mortgages. She serves on the board of directors for PREA, which is the Property Records Industry Association. And she's worked for legislators on the federal, state, and local levels. She has extreme experience managing political, grassroots, and public relations campaigns. She holds a degree in communication and lives in White Salmon, Washington. We discuss a lot of topics, including those pesky end traps and what you can do about them. We're going to learn the scoop behind Alta's new commercial network. We talk about good funds laws and layering those over some of the new payment methods that are coming online and have become available. We talk about lenders' risk tolerances, which ended up being a rather timely conversation. And also timely, we cover foreign entities purchasing real estate in the United States and what you need to know on that front. We talk about data privacy and the fact that the United States needs a strategic data privacy law. And guess what, guys? Your company needs a data privacy policy too. We've mentioned here before that data is now widely considered to be more valuable than oil. And one of the reasons for that is that once you use oil once, it's used up and then you have to go find more oil. But data, once someone owns that, it's reusable over and over again. And that means a lot to the future of our industry. We also talk about discriminatory covenants and the ripple effects of that. She's just so deeply knowledgeable on such a broad range of topics. I think you're really gonna enjoy this. So please sit back and enjoy the highly capable, the entirely delightful Elizabeth Blosser. Well, Elizabeth Blosser, welcome to Commitment Matters. We're so happy to have you. I'm so excited to be on with you. Thank you for having me. I'm going to try not to talk too fast. I'm going to try not to question you like an auctioneer because you wear so many hats at Alta and you're working on so many things. And I, I want to talk about a good number of them today. I'm going to jump right in and, and I'll just ask you of all the things you're working on right now, what sort of top of mind or taking up the most part of your day right now that people need to know about? Well, I think there's a lot of things happening legislatively. If we look at our portfolio of issues in the short time I've been at Alta, I joined Alta about six years ago. And the number of issues that we're actively addressing as an industry has grown dramatically, you know, three, fourfold what it was initially. And I think a lot of that is really good because we as an industry are looking at a lot of consumer facing issues. And I think one of the things that I'm most proud of and most excited about right now is the work that we've been doing on in-traps, non-title recorded agreements for personal services, which nobody can remember all of that, which is why we have that snappy acronym of in-traps talking about sort of entrapping consumers. But this is an issue some of your listeners might be aware of because it's happening in quite a few places around the country. But there are several real estate brokerage firms that are getting consumers to sign 40-year listing agreements in exchange for as little as a couple hundred dollars. And, you know, at the end of the day, 
basically what they're doing is putting a lien on their property because those listing agreements are being recorded in the land records. And the cost for getting out of one of those agreements is 3% of the person's property value. So obviously a very large sticker price compared to maybe the upfront compensation that they're receiving. These agreements are also kind of unique in that you know they purport to run with the land and also bind heirs and successors who may have no knowledge of their existence. So as an industry, obviously we have concerns about the added costs and complexity that these types of agreements are going to add to any sort of transfer of the real estate or any sort of financing that needs to happen. But there's also a really strong consumer component as it relates to this. And so we were able to work with AARP, some other consumer groups, some members of the Uniform Law Commission, some of our real estate industry partners and draft model legislation to ensure that these agreements don't get recorded in the land record, they don't provide constructive notice, run with the land, they're basically unenforceable. And then we've built in some remedies for consumers, for AGs to take action on the issue and to be able to have those agreements removed from the land records. So I'm really proud of the work that we've done to date. The first bill has actually passed through the legislature in Utah. So we're hopeful that the governor there will sign that. And Legislation's been introduced already in in 10 other states, some of the legislation stronger than others. And then on top of that, four state attorney generals have taken action on this issue and filed suit against one of these firms. So happy to be able to play a role not only in protecting the land records, but really protecting our consumers at the end of the day. Well, it's such a big deal. So I want to ask a couple of questions for those in areas that haven't experienced this yet. And if you haven't, hopefully you won't. So when someone hears, oh, it's an agreement with the listing broker to pay 3% and the owner is given some consideration on the front end of that, how is that different than a listing agreement? And and you're going to say, well, it's very different than a listing agreement, but let's talk about the ways that's different than a traditional listing agreement that doesn't necessarily freak somebody out. Well, I mean, I think one of the obvious things is the time frame. When you're talking about a 40-year listing agreement, I mean, I can't remember what I did 40 days ago, much less 40 years from now, or, you know, my heirs or successors having that information. So I think it's really outside the box as it pertains to listing agreements. And actually, we refer to these as unfair service agreements versus listing agreements because we really do think of them in a different way. And because it's not like it's an active listing from the time you sign it. It's if it's transferred anywhere in that time. So it's not like you sign this agreement and your house goes on the market and they have 40 years to sell it. <laughs> exactly. And so it's for a future service. The way our legislation is written, we sort of define an unfair services agreement as an agreement for a service that's going to happen in the future beyond one year from now. I think it's incredibly different than what we would think of as traditional listing agreements and, you know, things that that we're, we're used to. And then this sort of act of recording them in the land records is very disconcerting. I mean, what if other businesses decide to do something similar? And we, we kind of saw this with transfer fees about 10 years ago. It was before my time in the industry, but kind of looking through the archives, I see a lot of similarities. But 
What's to keep another business, let's say a pool company or a landscaping company, from saying, hey, Mary, I'm going to give you $300 if you sign this agreement to let me keep your yard and pool clean for the next 20 years. And oh, by the way, if you try and get out of this contract, there's extremely stiff penalties that really are not equivalent to that upfront financial benefit you received. And so uh, we want to make sure that we're discouraging this sort of activity in the future. And especially as title people, I mean, we're always using the land records and see the value of sort of keeping those clean and making sure that personal service agreements aren't included in the land records. I think we all know that there's lots of legitimate liens that are recorded in the land records and our legislation does nothing to impact them or their validity. But we don't want to see these personal service agreements being recorded, you know, with sort of this idea that they run with the land. So if a broker is pitching this to a current owner, is the pitch, we'll give you some money for signing this now, and two, we're locking in that we'll list at 3% or 6% or 7%, and boy, commission could go to 8 9 or 10 so you're locking in. Is it kind of like a commission rate lock? Is that the pitch? I'm trying to understand why people would find this appealing. I think the bottom line is most consumers probably look at it and say, oh, hey, I'm getting, you know, $300, $400, $500 right now to sign an agreement for when I sell my property, whenever that is in the future. And, you know, maybe these are seniors, maybe they're people who need that financial compensation, but pretty much all of them are going to be non-attorneys, non-real estate professionals, right? And so we look at it through a very different lens than the average consumer who looks at it and says, oh, I can get this upfront money. I'm going to, If I do sell my house, I am going to have to use someone. Why not this person? I've had the opportunity to talk to a couple of consumers around the country who have signed these agreements and run into significant issues. That response is based on, on the stories that they've shared with me. Yeah. Well, that's completely fair. Another question I have for agents that are in areas that have not yet encountered this, and again, through Alta's work, if they haven't, hopefully they won't. But in case, if an agent comes across one of these that has been filed, what should they do if they find one right now? Well, I I think that that's a great question. And I would say even if you think that they aren't happening, you should probably do a search in the land records and and see these agreements have been filed as different things in different places. I mean, in some places they've been actually filed as mortgages. Oh my. Yeah. So probably worth a look-see if you're in the middle of a property transfer, you know, that's something that's going to have to be taken into account as it relates to that transaction. There is ongoing litigation between these firms and consumers right now. And then we're encouraging consumers to definitely reach out to their attorney general and their state and sort of talk about this. Mary, I've been shocked at the number of news stories there have been on this topic. You know, print media, TV, it has really had a negative impact on consumers already in such a strong way that, you know, it's something that investigative reporters have felt was important to cover and, you know, make people aware of. And so for people not familiar, where are some of the hotbed locations for this sort of activity? It's been weird because it kind of varies state by state. In some places you see it more in metro 
areas than rural areas. Um, you could do an analysis kind of of different types of communities where they're showing up on the land records. And, you know, I think you'll see in some states, maybe regulators will take a look at that. But it seems to sort of be, you know, maybe where, wherever they're staffing and there's people out do, doing this. I know there's been also questions about robocalls and other types of calls associated with these types of programs. So, you know, beyond state regulators, federal legislators and regulators has, have also been made aware of this and to some extent are looking at it, including the leaders of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee asking the CFPB and the FTC to look into it. Well, I would imagine that at first glance, people look at them and they think, oh, this is just an option and options have been around for a long time. What's the big deal? And you kind of have to get past that to realize, oh, no, this isn't an option and it's going to get paid whether the realtor does any work or not. And yes, it encumbers the land for often 40 years, 30, 40 years. It's a little bit different than an option, but I think at least when I'm talking with elected people, especially, that's their first reaction is, oh, so it's kind of like an option. Nope. (laughs) If, If it were an option, we'd be less concerned. Right, exactly. I do think the press coverage has been helpful on this because as you sort of hear individual stories, you get a clearer picture of kind of how these agreements are progressing and and how they're impacting people. But again, I don't think that this is in any way close to standard practices for the industry. I think this is, again, very outside the box, which is why we we refer to them as unfair service agreements versus listing agreements or or something that, you know, we would be familiar with traditionally when talking about real estate transactions. Yes. Well, and I hope agents that are out there, if they come across one, they make sure they're talking with you guys, of course, obviously talking to their underwriters. And yes, this is a good opportunity to get an attorney general involved to get a newspaper involved. This is a just another one of those stories of the things we quietly do right. And most of the time, us quietly doing the right things is okay. But once in a while, we need to really raise the flag and say, hey, guys, guys, I mean consumers and, yes, legislators, to say, you may not understand what's going on here, but we need to bring this to your attention and, and just kind of help get the tide turned. Yeah, again, I think this is a great topic for not just from an industry perspective, but as you say, from a consumer perspective. And we do, you know, as an industry, people do quietly go about their work and we're not often sort of like tooting our own horn. But I think this is this is one where we should be out front. We should be talking about this to the press, to um, legislators, regulators and others. And it's it's been a fantastic opportunity to really coordinate efforts with a lot of consumer groups as well. Yeah. Well, and also, of course, has got some great stuff on their website, which we'll link to in the show notes. We encourage everyone to go out there. But truly, if you come across one of these for the first time, especially, we want to make sure you're talking with Elizabeth. We'll put your email in the show notes, too, if that's okay, because we want people to raise their hand when they get these because we need to know where they are and we need to help get them dealt with. So that's great. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing people have done is just sort of county by county sent me a list of the number of recordings. And that has also been helpful, especially if we're talking to lawmakers or regulators from that state to say, 
this isn't just some sort of theoretical thing. There's been X hundred of these recorded in this county or that county. And then that becomes very real to them when you can start putting some numbers behind the concept. Yes. And I'm sure they would rather hear from us about it now rather than angry constituents later. (laughs) Absolutely. Nobody wants an angry constituent. They used to work in legislative offices. You don't want that. You know all about that. Well, and then for the benefit of everyone, we're recording this at the end of February. I say that to say you just wrapped up the first commercial network meeting. I want to know how it went. I'm sure people were thrilled to be there. I'm sure it's been an aspect that we've been needing to kind of pick up the ball on for a while. So I'd love to just hear your recap of how that went. So it's kind of a funny story. I had been with Alta. I don't even know if it had been a year. And I went to a state land title convention. I love going to those. And those are great places to, you know, connect with our members and hear what's important to them. And I would encourage everybody listening, when you're at your state land title association conference and you run into an Alta staff person or an Alta board member, like pull them aside, talk to them about the things that are important to you, because those are the conversations that determine what our strategic priorities are going to be for the association. This was actually very soon after I I was at Alta, I was invited out to dinner with some of our members. And what turned out to be a a maybe semi-uncomfortable conversation for me was, what are you doing in the commercial space? We go to Alta meetings and, you know, we hear a lot about what's happening on the residential side, but for a commercial-only title company, What is Alta doing for us? And I think that those are fair questions. And I want people to ask those types of questions. So as a result, we put together the commercial network and and we had an initial kickoff meeting back in 2018, I think it was, in Chicago. And I was hoping for, you know, maybe 25 companies to show up, have a conversation about commercial topics. And I, I will be honest, at that point, I knew very little about commercial transactions. I've been very educated in the time since, but we had a great, great turnout, many more people than we anticipated. And so we've been hosting the commercial network, we had to take a little bit of hiatus because of COVID. But yeah, last week we were down in San Diego for the commercial network. And it was a fantastic event, a great place for people to network. People who are in the commercial space know how important it is to sort of network with others who are working in in that space. But in addition to that, we had some just really great content and fun discussions. We had Jamie Woodwell from the Mortgage Bankers Association, who's uh, one of their commercial real estate economists join us and give sort of a a good sort of lay of the land of kind of what to think about in the various sectors and what's coming down the road. But then we also had some really fun sessions where we broke up into groups and there was like hypothetical transactions and people worked through some of the difficulties and talked about their best practices. And this commercial meeting is really focused on people who are doing commercial every single day. And so that the content is very unique to their needs, what they're looking for, what they want to learn from their colleagues around the country, their counterparts. It was a great event. We're already starting to plan the event for next year. And then the other thing we started to do is put a commercial track with the programming at Alta One. So if you go to Alta One and you're in the commercial title space, there are sessions designed just for you. 
Those sessions tend to be a little bit more accessible for people who maybe don't exclusively work in the space to go and to learn. But it's been a great program. We've had such good response to it. And I'm I'm just thrilled that we've had this opportunity to address something that our our members were looking for. Yeah, it is great. And I know that, you know, a lot of people who are trying to learn commercial, it's sort of catch as catch can. Every deal is a little bit differently. There's not really a super good place to go learn <laughs> with the regulation being very, very different than residential. It can feel a little bit like the wild, wild west. And so I think having a community like that of professionals that can, to your point, call on each other and come together and learn is just fantastic. I'm so glad you decided to do that. Yeah, it's been a really fun project. And you're absolutely right. There's very little uniformity in how any of this works. And that was another topic of conversation we had with some lenders who attended the meeting talking about sort of their pain points and and transactions, and then how as an industry to try and find some more standardization, you know, even if it's around things like multifamily housing. So I think a lot of great ideas are going to come out of these meetings and discussions as we go forward too. I'm excited about that. Another thing that I'm excited about is the Alta board is doing some preparation work that's going to ultimately pertain to different state good funds laws. You're going to start going down some analysis with regard to payment rails in the real estate market. So for people that aren't familiar with any of this, let's start at ground zero and build our way up on that topic. Yeah, this is an interesting one because we hear about everything from cryptocurrency to using payment apps like Zelle or Venmo. And there's just different ways for people to be able to send money and process payments these days. And it's increasingly digital in nature. And so a lot of the payment apps and and different ways to transfer money sort of run on what we think of as payment rails whether that be wire transfers or ACH or what's happening now that's kind of new in the space, which is real-time payments. Yeah, and FedNow system coming on uh, soon. 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 Yeah, <laughs> hopefully in the next several months here, we'll see that come online. And so sort of seeing all of this coming and knowing, you know, there's going to be consumer demand for this, right? In terms of like, what can we use? What can we not use? And at the same time, we have to balance that with state good funds laws, which we like because they provide certainty in real estate transactions. We put together a work group on this. And, you know, sometimes I'm a little bit too optimistic about things. I'm like, we're going to put together a work group. We're just going to write some little legislative texts where this is going to be like over in no time, snippety snappity. We started getting into these, what I think of as circular conversation about like, well, what is the definition of irrevocable? And if you get to the definition, what does that mean as it relates to these different payment types? And then when you look at those payment types, you know, what is the definition of finally settled? And that sounds so arcane, but guys, it's important because without those things being in place, a lot of people, Elizabeth, that are listening came into the business after good funds laws were established. So for some of us longer in the tooth than others, before good funds laws, oftentimes the agent got pressured into essentially acting like a lender. Just, oh, you just release funds and our check will be there tomorrow, we promise. And that 
largely wasn't consumers doing it, although consumers are very good at walking the straight and narrow path when it comes time for closing. They're just, just tell me what to do so I don't mess anything up. But back in the day, it was even lenders just kind of, oh, we know you guys have a trust account. Just go ahead and fund it. Here's a tracking number for our check. Everything will be fine tomorrow. So the short version is an agent can get into position of being acting like a lender, even if it's for a short period of time and being on the hook. So I just want to set that stage. Sorry for the interruption. Go ahead. No, that is good and helpful context because, yeah, you don't want to be the, oh, we're good for it, the checks in the mail. We, we don't want uh, to escrow accounts to be operating on the checks in the mail. So as we had sort of these discussions, and it's it's interesting that you sort of reflect on this, we did an analysis of the state good funds laws. They could not be more different. I mean, they're just radically different from state to state. And that was also a challenge in terms of sort of a model. What are the key things that you want to address? So as we did our deep dive, we did something a little bit interesting and said, you know, actually, we now know that there's a lot that we don't know. And so we need additional help. So we sort of slowed everything down and decided to go to the Alta board and ask for resources to be able to retain outside counsel to help us do an analysis of the various payment rails, how they can be used, what the tail risks are, what state and federal laws and regulations maybe apply to each, what finally settled looks like on each, all of this sort of information. And I think it's going to be helpful. I mean, there's a lot of experts in this space, and we're in the process of putting out the RFP to find an individual or firm group of experts to help us with this. But we're not really looking for a legal opinion so much as we are looking for practical information, some sort of a grid about here are the payment rails, here's maybe the payment apps that sit on them, and and here are all the factors that apply. That's going to be really helpful as we go back to the project of drafting model good funds laws, but it's going to be really, really helpful to agents who need to reference that when they're looking to comply with these good funds laws. So I think we're going to learn a lot in this process. I think it's important to know that there are things you don't know and to sort of get help and look at the broader picture outside of our our industry. I have to say, I asked kind of the question of a group of agents, do you know today what your primary transfer methods are in going and, and outgoing and sort of the average dollar amount that goes on each type of payment rail? And most of them had not done any sort of analysis like that. So I think also sort of figuring out what is standard practice in the industry is going to be helpful. I mean, I have no idea if we did that analysis, it might tell us some very interesting things. So Alta is going to be doing some additional survey work within the industry. And so this is going to be a component of of upcoming surveys to make sure we have good industry data. And I'm really curious to see what some of the responses to that will be. And, you know, they may be different than after we do implement good funds laws. Well, and I would encourage anybody who is sitting in a state with a part of their good funds law that they either don't like or part of their good funds law that saved them in a situation that they didn't automatically see. I hope they'll reach out to somebody in that work group just to say, here are some outliers too that have turned out to be important, either negatively or positively, because you also want to at least have an idea of what some of those hedge case scenarios are. 
Yeah, absolutely. That would be fantastically helpful. And any sort of information or data people have on this topic, we're really wanting to capture and look at right now as we're just sort of doing this comprehensive analysis. Well, yeah. And another part of it, I would imagine, too, is so you have your good funds laws in your state. And we all thought back when Bill Clinton signed Check 21 in that we knew what that would mean practically. But not all banks consider funds good at the same point. So we still have some that are requiring it to cure for seven days on deposit before they'll release. I mean, so you have to kind of factor all of that in too, which I have opinions about whether or not that should still be allowable in check 21 age, but it is. So there's just so many factors. And yeah, these newer payment methods, we have a few agents who accept crypto or did I don't know if they still do. That might have changed fairly recently. But yeah, what are some of these other methods and what other requests have they had? What, Especially what are the predominant requests? Because yeah, there's a whole data sensitivity in there with some of these, with these methods at all. So I know your report's going to get down deep in that. It's going to be some super nerdy, fun, weedy stuff to get through. It will be some fun stuff to get through. And one of the other things I'm looking forward to finding out is sort of other industries maybe have different risk tolerances and really understanding what that is even though even the you know banking industry has kind of changed some of their standards recently as money moves more quickly I do want to touch on cryptocurrency since we talked a little bit about that because this is something that keeps coming up in state legislation as well whether it's sort of digital assets wholly and in, in terms of maybe transferring nfts through an llc versus sort of a traditional real estate transfer but as it relates to cryptocurrency i think what people should consider right now as agents is really thinking of cryptocurrency as just another type of currency you know whether you're talking pesos or euros or whatever you have to convert that to U.S. dollars in order to complete a transaction and in order to comply generally with state laws related to escrow and things like that. So when you see some of this press or hear people talk about, oh, I want, you know, I did a transaction in cryptocurrency, I'm going to guess and hope that there was a conversion that happened prior to the transaction and it was actually transacted in uh, U.S. dollars, so there, you know, there are there are federal laws and banking laws and laws that relate to escrow that sort of dictate at at this point that we're dealing in U.S. dollars right now. You have to keep your escrow account in you know a U.S. federally insured financial institution, and today they only deal in U.S. dollars. There's a lot of discussion around that, but there seems to be a pretty straightforward answer in terms of what's allowable today. So hopefully the the currency transfer is happening. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I like the way that you put that. That's a good reference point for people. You might accept, I'm using air quotes, listeners, accept crypto, but it's going to get converted. Just like if somebody brought in a bag of pesos, there's no place on a settlement statement to log those pesos. You got to convert it over. Well, another thing that's really timely right now is we've got some stuff going on legislatively with the foreign ownership of real estate. And I think this is going to continue to get hotter, not cooler. And I know that you're involved in that. So, oh gosh, please tell us everything you know. (laughs) 
Yeah, where to start? We saw a little bit of legislation on this last year in, in 2022, maybe just a handful of bills sort of dealing with the concept of restricting the purchase of U.S. real estate as it relates to different foreign entities from maybe certain countries and maybe it applied to governments or organizations or individuals. So fast forward to this year, and we saw a couple of bills pop up, you know, 10, 12. That was a couple of weeks ago. Yesterday, when I looked, there were 74 bills related to this issue all over the country. That includes red states, blue states. I personally am blaming the balloon. The balloon. Yeah. The the balloon balloon for for this. Well, first it was kind of started targeting residential areas, basically where we saw the first GTOs, which were going to are going to be expanded. And we can talk about that too. But then I agree with you hundred percent, the balloons. And then we started talking about farmland. We did. And, you know, agricultural land came up a little bit during the election cycle and some of the state races last year. And again, it's a bipartisan issue. There may be different reasoning behind these efforts based on party, but there is bipartisan Support. So right now, of these 70 plus bills, they're kind of all over the map. Some of them are limited maybe to agricultural lands. Some of them maybe reference real estate near sensitive security facilities, whether that be a military facility or otherwise sort of national security. Next to Raytheon. <laughs> right, right. And then we've seen sort of the, the group of Entities and individuals expand in terms of who would be restricted. We've seen now a variety of countries sort of added to the list, and it's not just commercial property or foreign governments or foreign companies and entities. In some cases, it includes individuals. And I think there's probably a much larger conversation around fair housing laws and all sorts of those types of things. And I hope people have those conversations. What we're concerned about right now in the here and now is that these bills don't make previous transactions void and they don't make property untransferable in the future because it was previously owned by a foreign entity that is now restricted from owning property in a particular state. And so to that end, we did a mad dash. We did like 10 days, pulled together a work group of experts, met like every other day and pulled together some legislative text that states can use if they're looking at one of these bills and basically puts a process in place. And it says, hey, if this happens, there needs to be divestment of the real estate and, you know, it needs to go through an established process or procedure, whether that's, you know, foreclosure or receivership or whatever is primarily used in a state. And and also that there needs to be sort of a clear agency law enforcement group within in the state that has has oversight on all of this. So that's kind of what we're looking at right now. I think that this is going to pop up. Well, it has already popped up on the federal level. We'll see like how much traction it gets, but certainly lots of stuff moving right now on the state level. And again, what we don't want to see, and I don't I don't think any legislator is looking to void transactions that have already happened or to make land untransferable in the future because of clouds and title. 
So it's a little bit of education and providing some of that language to safeguard against that. Mm, that's very important. And and this may be a little early for this question, but I'll ask anything in there about limiting liability for a settlement agent or title insurer who doesn't catch three layers down in the LLC <laughs> stacking that, that one of the entities involved was a foreign individual from the blacklisted areas? <laughs> right. I mean, there's no way for a title company or other sort of real estate professional to do the vetting as it relates to these pieces of legislation. You know, for example, there's one that sort of restricts purchase by members of the Chinese Communist Party. Well, they don't publish on their website a list of their members for us to go in and handily check against. And so certainly our talking points have also been around the fact that the responsibility for complying with these state laws needs to be with the purchaser, not with the real estate professional who has really no ability to validate one way or another. And I, you know, I'm sure none of us want to get into that business. No, there's, <laughs> to your point, it can't be done. I mean, it, it just can't. So that's an important consideration as well. Well, stay tuned for more on that. I don't think that one's going away anytime soon, especially going into the 24 election. That, that's when things like this tend to at least be discussed more often. So it's going to be on the radar screen. Yeah, absolutely. And it's happening now. I mean, it's sort of, like I said, brand new in the last couple of weeks. And happening everywhere. So people do need to be aware of it and, and watching for it. And to your point, what we don't want to see happen is some bill go through and there be an expectation that the title industry or lenders or others, realtors are vetting the clients and making sure that purchasers are eligible to, to buy real estate. That's completely unrealistic. And we'll just hire a private investigator for every deal, Elizabeth. It'll be fine. Right. It'll be fine. Oh, that's funny. Well, one of the things I wanted to talk with you about is a topic very near and dear to my heart, and that's about data privacy. And I know that you are the ALTA liaison on the data privacy work group, the hardworking data privacy work group. So would you give listeners an update on what's going on in, in that realm, please? So this is an interesting one because we saw a lot of activity, you know, maybe four or five years ago. And then with COVID stuff sort of slowed down to some extent. But I think we're seeing, you know, privacy initiatives in various aspects of the industry. I think there's comprehensive data privacy laws being passed, like what, you know, California passed initially that basically gave consumers rights as it related to information about them. And I think this is a really important piece and kind of how I explain it is, you know, in the past, if you were a company and you captured data about a person and you housed that data and maybe you added to that data, that data was yours. It was your property. You know, maybe you used it internally, maybe you sold it, but that was sort of your information and you owned it. What happened with laws in the European Union and then in California is there was a shift and the idea was if information about me, Elizabeth Blosser, exists somewhere, no matter where it's housed or how it was collected, I own it. If it's about me, I own it. And as a result, I have rights as it relates to that data. And so there are some sort of typical rights that we've seen come out of legislation and regulatory initiatives, things like the ability to correct 
information, the ability to have certain data deleted, all sorts of rights around at the time of collection around disclosures and notifications and how is this data going to be used and you know the ability for that information to be shared with a third party or another entity. So obviously a huge change in how we think about information in the information age. And it's something that consumers have wanted. You saw in California a referendum overwhelmingly pass on this Polling shows that, you you know, you've got 80% and up of Americans that are looking for more control when it comes to their data and in terms of their privacy. It's an issue that's not going away. What's been interesting about these comprehensive data privacy bills, which most states have had, had one, even if it hasn't passed, something has been introduced, is generally speaking, they have exemptions for Graham, Leach, Bliley, GLBA entities or GLBA related data. Doesn't mean that our industry is completely exempt from these bills. There may be things as it relates to information you're capturing on your your website and definitions are really important when you look at these bills in terms of what is the definition of personal information and what's included in what's considered sensitive information. Mm-hmm. To date, all of these comprehensive data privacy bills have had some sort of exemption for GLBA entities, which are generally speaking what ALTA members are. We fall under the requirements of the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act. So thinking about that, there is now sort of an effort to look at GLBA and modernize that. And so there's conversations happening both in the House and the Senate nationally about what modernization of GLBA might look like and what sort of consumer rights might need to be included in that and how, you know, how data might need to be used going forward. So that is a big conversation for our industry to be part of because it directly impacts how, how we utilize data. So watch out for more on that. There's certainly a lot of questions, and I don't know that we're going to get consensus in Congress on, on this topic, but certainly something that's not necessarily going away. And then on top of that, you have sort of this question about data privacy as it relates to public records and for us specifically land records. And so we traditionally have thought of that as the issue of redaction. I like to think about it as as record shielding because we don't want to be technically redacting any information or removing it permanently from the land records. But there are certainly groups of people who have legitimate safety concerns. And, you know, unfortunately, we've seen news stories about horrific things that have happened every day. We see more every day. There's certainly a reason for people to want to have their address information specifically shielded. And, And so as we look at those types of pieces of legislation, we've put together some best practices around what those laws should look like and how they should be implemented. And it's key things like there does need to be permission to access to get that information for a real estate transaction so that, you know, the protected individuals don't run into problems being able to transfer or finance property. There needs to be some sort of time restrictions on it. You know, people can change jobs. They can change homes. Maybe they're no longer a protected party or they're, they live in a different state. And so there's questions about what happens to that record that's been been shielded or hopefully not permanently redacted. And so, again, on the Alta website, I think there's some really good 
talking points to use when talking to legislators and, and others, because we do see these bills moving quickly. And it's it's not surprising based on the news cycle. Of course, you know, people want to protect these at-risk individuals. We suggest people look at the bill that's been active in Arizona for 20 years as it relates to record shielding. It's, it's worked really well. We direct people to that. And then, you know, there's also these address confidentiality laws in 30 plus states, ADCON laws that are generally run by a secretary of state or other state entity, often for victims of domestic abuse to make sure that their information isn't readily available. So maybe expansion of those types of programs is an option as well. So lots happening in this space and just a huge national conversation. Yeah. Well, and sort of related to that, the previously discriminatory covenants issue falls along similar lines of we don't want anything necessarily deleted permanently from the record because we that matters to us. But when it's not and it it shows up on a commitment, then you and you have to walk somebody through that at the closing table. It it can be very hurtful and unnecessarily so. So is there much new ground being covered on that front? Absolutely. Lots kind of happening in this space. We've had the opportunity to, um, we did a webinar recently with the Mapping Prejudice Project, which is based in Minnesota, where they take a look at some of these discriminatory covenants and actually map them out and see what their impact has been over time. And it is startling. Certainly, these discriminatory covenants are part of a very dark history and past as it relates to real estate in this country. And We do want people to feel empowered to repudiate that, to have that associated with your property, your home, the place that's so special to you as a person. That does not feel good to a lot of people, and rightly so. So again, we want groups like Mapping Prejudice Project to be able to do their research and have the historical record available to them so that they can sort of do analysis and show the harm and create the visualizations that make this issue very real for people. But we also want consumers to be empowered to address the fact that there's one of these discriminatory covenants on their property. We've been working pretty closely with the Uniform Law Commission. They've actually been drafting model legislation on this. It it actually came at, at our request along with that of others. And I think they've come up with a really good approach for people to be able to file a sort of repudiation of the discriminatory covenant and basically state that it's no longer part of the documents and by filing a document to that effect. And so hopefully that gets approved in July and is something the industry can support and put that out there because I think it's a a really balanced approach to making sure that people are empowered to do something about these records that relate to their property but also still making sure that the information is available to groups like Mapping Prejudice and and others who are doing a great work studying them. Yeah. And even us as sort of the keepers of the historical record, because we have so many things in our records that the collective we, society, forgets about. And once in a while, we trot those out and say, hey, guys, don't forget this harebrained thing you're thinking about. It's been tried once before. Here's what happened. Or we used to take our records out, some of our title records out to the genealogical society, our plants, and because they were people that were interested in it, but they really didn't realize that we were sitting on this trove. And I'll never forget, this was 
30 years ago, but a lady who was elderly then leaned forward and said, I want to thank you so much for coming to talk to us. She said, I know this for sure because it's happened in my lifetime. When we try to scrub all of our past mistakes away, they become invisible. People forget and we repeat them. So even if it's hard to look at them, and it is, every once in a while, at least if we have them back in the back room somewhere, we can bring those out and say, guys, we're getting dangerously close to something terrible again. And it can serve as a reminder for people as well. But you don't want to put it, to your point, somebody's excited about buying their house and, you know, they have this achievement and these things are not legal or enforceable anymore. Why have it be an issue? People could say, well, let's just Clorox that. Eh, well, wait, there, but there is some value to the historical if you want to call it shame, you want to call it fact, however you choose to think about it, it, it still does matter historically. So it is tricky. I like very much what you said, that this kind of seems like a, a good glide path to not <laughs> continue, certainly not celebrate these things. You can take some affirmative positions, some advocacy on protesting them, but not having them washed away in the rain either because they matter from a historical perspective. Yeah, and I I think homeowners are going to feel good about that ability to just proactively, again, repudiate this mint to your earlier point. If you're, you're sitting there and you're excited about buying your property and then you find out that maybe somebody else didn't have the same opportunities you're going to have because of these restrictions in the past, man, it's just sort of blows your mind. And when you start looking at at some of the data about how it has impacted things like home ownership through the years, it's really, really startling. And it makes me really glad we have a fair housing today, right? We've come a really long ways. But honestly, you know, it wasn't that long ago that these discriminatory covenants were allowed. It's not really that many generations back. If you if you start thinking about it, you're like, wow, that was the 60s, you know, when fair housing happened. And it's like, wow, that's, yeah, I can't believe that recently, you know, we were allowing this type of thing to happen. So I think, too, as an industry, we can be really glad that we've come so far as it relates to to fair housing. Yes. And to be able to get some of that data from that project of, because we know, we knew they were crafted effectively and they worked effectively. And so to be able to bring that data forward and say, to your point, look how far we've come. Nobody's taking a victory lap, but we do have to acknowledge how far we've come. Wow, these were effective. Thank goodness we don't have that anymore. You know, it's similar to, I keep a an old abstract in my desk. And anytime I teach new title people, or oftentimes when I'm teaching new software people about the business, I bring out this old abstract and I go back to a court case from the 30s where in this state, the wife was suing the husband for divorce. He had it coming. He wasn't home very often. He sounded kind of like a ne'er-do-well, kind of a roustabout kind of guy. There were two kids in the family, and she was awarded funds for equity in the house, but she couldn't be awarded the house because she was an unmarried woman and couldn't hold title to the property once the divorce became effective. And I, I teach to that and say, you know, this is how it used to be and not that long ago. So- Let's not go back there. <laughs> and also, women, do we have a ways to go? Yes, we do. But look, we're not there anymore. So I think it helps frame up a sane discussion about things instead of just a perception-based, emotional, solely emotional discussion, which has every opportunity to go off the rails. 
Yeah, I'm glad you share that story because it does sort of show how far we've come. And as an industry, you know, we're so sort of our motto is we are the protectors of people's property rights. And that is all peoples and, you know, near and dear to our hearts and what, what we do every day. So it's so sad that these things happened in the past and really great that we can repudiate them now and move forward with the fair housing initiatives that, that have made it possible for these various uh, groups to be able to realize the benefits of real estate ownership. Mm-hmm. Yep. A little bit better each day. That's what we're all going for. I like it. I like it too. I, well, you're so busy. I'm sure some days you wonder if you've gained any ground, but listen, just kind of covering your primary body of work here, it shows us how expansive your expertise is in all these areas. And we're so glad that you're on our team fighting for us. We're going to, again, point everybody to the resources you mentioned and your email address. If they have data that would be helpful or questions, we're going to encourage them to reach out. And just on behalf of all of us out here who are the beneficiaries, thank you for all you do for us. Oh, thank you. That's so sweet to hear. I love working in this industry. I mean, I came in knowing very little about title other than I had been to a title company to uh, you know, transact in real estate in the past. And it's just, it's such a great group of people and it really is sort of a family. And I, I love the opportunity every day to advocate on behalf of the industry as a whole. And please do reach out to me. I'm always anxious to hear from our members about the things that are important to them. Elizabeth, thanks so much for the great conversation. I loved covering all that ground with you. And I know that in our show notes, we'll link up some of the resources you mentioned, including some of the sample legislative texts and talking points around foreign ownership of U.S. real estate. So guys, there's a lot going on out there right now. There's a lot of things to watch and cover, and we're going to have episodes for you on all of it. We're obviously watching the banking situation very carefully to see what evolves there. You may have read about the Townstone case with the CFPB. We're going to have a great guest for you diving into understanding the nuances of that case and how Townstone was able to prevail in it. We're, of course, watching the Supreme Court closely. They recently announced that they granted cert for a CFPB case coming out of the Fifth Circuit. And that focuses on payday lending. But as you heard in my discussion with Steve Gottheim, there's potentially a lot of outflow from that. And we're going to have a guest who knows it better than most people. So watch this space. And until next time, It's a little weird out there right now. So be sure to schedule some time to do things that keep you feeling grounded. Keep your hands on the wheel. It's a good time maybe to hunker down a little and wait for some things just now to kind of settle down and plane out. We'll stay busy here, keeping tabs on what matters and keeping you informed because what you do really matters.